One of the things I will never forget was the very first time I held my very firstborn in my arms. Uh, it, was, it was something I was totally unprepared for. It was a transformative moment. Um, he was so tiny. He, he clocked in around six pounds and some change in his little arms and his little legs. I'd never seen a human being that small before. And I held him in my arms and I looked down at him and he was absolutely perfect. He had my heart and all of my love. Love, a sense of love I didn't even know that existed in me was immediately being poured out for this kid. And he had done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. He literally just showed up. And in that moment, I realized that meatloaf had been wrong the whole time because I would do anything for love and I would even do that in that moment for this kid. And it was, it was a moment that looking back on it, um, I will never, ever, ever be able to duplicate. It's a one-off. Um, and there's something else that happened in that moment too. Um, I had an immediate theology shift because the moment they put this little baby into my arms who was beautiful and perfect and wonderful, I immediately had to deal with some theological categories that I'd been taught my entire life. Things like um, original sin and total depravity, right? These beliefs that, that there's some sort of stain because of what a couple people did naked in a garden with some fruit way back when because of that thing. Now that every human being who's born is born flawed and broken and, and stained by that original sin and that we are all now totally depraved. There's nothing good in us that God can't even look at us or stand us or be near us because we're so terribly sinful. And as I held my brand new baby in my arms and I looked down at his sweet, beautiful face, I realized there's nothing wrong with him. He did not come into this world broken. He did not come into this world sinful. He did not come into this world separated from God. He came into this world inherently united with God and still is inherently united with God. And so in that moment, just holding this child, knowing a love that I'd never known before, my theological categories for sin began to change because I can no longer look at this child and say, you are deserving of eternal damnation. I can no longer look at him and take those categories, which had then had been about other people and place it on my child. And so it began to shift my understanding of what we mean by sin. We typically talk about sins. Uh, I think it might be fun right now in the comment section, if everybody would just like type, like let us know what your favorite one is, and then we can all talk about each other later. That'd be a lot of fun. I'm totally kidding, of course. But the way we tend to talk about it, right, is sins, plural. Sins, plural. There are multiple of them. And the way we usually think about sins are these lists of do's and don'ts, things you're allowed to do that are permissible, things you're not allowed to do that are not permissible, things in the middle that are a little gray and you can get forgiveness for later if it's a problem. And then we have this whole idea of sins of omission and sins of commission, right? Sometimes you can sin by doing something and sometimes you can sin by not doing something, omitting something that maybe you were supposed to do, that you were expected to do. And that's typically how we've talked about sins. And then what the point of religion becomes, what the point of the Christian, in this specific example, the Christian tradition becomes is just like to manage our sin, to deal with all the sins, to, to try to keep this sin in check and then this one pops out and then this one, it, right? It, it's become sort of a sin management, just trying to keep the bad ones at bay and, and getting forgiveness for the little ones that we engage in. What's interesting is the Bible does not focus on sins, plural. Yeah, I know there's a couple lists in there that mention this and that, and sometimes the translations are off on it. And if, yes, it, it does talk about sins, plural. But the point the Bible is trying to get at, the thing the Bible wants to talk about is sin, singular, not sin, plural. In the biblical tradition, there's this understanding of sin 
And then there are these sins that are symptomatic of this bigger thing. There's sins, of course, yeah, we all do stuff. But then there's this thing that is sort of they're emanating from, and it's this idea of sin. And I want to read a story for you from the book of Genesis. And it's not going to be the story you expect. When we talk about sin, uh, original sin, or, or whatever you want to call it, when we talk about sin, we often go to Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, naked, walking with God, have the run of the place, and then they take the fruit they're not supposed to take. They eat the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they realize they're naked and the whole thing falls apart. What is really interesting, and I can't get over this the more I think about it, the word sin is never mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. does not come up. What happens between Adam and Eve and God in Genesis 3 is never in that chapter identified as sin. The very first mention of sin in the Bible happens a chapter later, and it happens in the story of a man named Cain and his brother Abel. And so it's Genesis chapter 4. The man Adam knew his wife Eve intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain and said, I've given life to a man with the Lord's help. She gave birth a second time to Cain's brother Abel. Abel cared for the flocks and Cain farmed the fertile land. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. Literally in Hebrew, it's his face fell. And I think we all know what that feels like. He said, the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why do you look resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin will be waiting at the door, ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. The first mention of sin in the Bible happens in a conversation between God and Cain who is resentful and angry that his offering wasn't accepted in the same way his brother's was accepted. Now, this story is full of all sorts of things that I don't understand. Like, why are they making an offering? Was that just a human impulse? Or was there some sort of divine command they were given that we're not aware of? And, and why is it that Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's offering wasn't accepted? And we don't get any of that information. What we get is that that's what happens. And Cain is angry and resentful. And God essentially says, if you're not careful, sin is waiting by the door to pounce on you and you've got to resist it, right? So sin isn't inevitable for Cain. It can be resisted. He can do something else. And yet it's right at the door ready to pounce. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the story, the next, the next line Cain says to Abel, let's go out into the field. If somebody says that to you, you need to run the other way. Because they go out into the field, Cain kills his brother Abel, and God essentially speaks to Cain, and it sets off this chain of violence throughout human history. That if Cain gets injured, there'll be this much revenge, and if Cain's descendant gets injured, there'll be this much revenge. And it essentially just creates what we know as human history, this bloody, violent history that we share and have shared on this planet. What's interesting is that shame, shame plays sort of a kickstarting role in Cain's story. I mean, that's what he's feeling, right? When he goes and makes an offering and it's not accepted in the same way that his brother's is accepted. He's embarrassed. He feels let down. He feels like he's being treated unfairly. And there's this shame that comes over him. And even though he's warned, he still goes out into the field and kills his brother. And that's the introduction of sin singular in the Bible. Sins, plural, come later. Right? And I actually think you can make a differentiation here to say that what you see Cain do is part of sins, plural, but it shows us what sin, singular, actually ultimately ends up being. Sins, plural, are symptoms of sin, singular. 
Now, when I was growing up in youth group, we um, made a big deal out of memorizing the Roman road. I don't know if anybody else, I was about to raise my hand, but you can't, nobody, I can't see any of you. Um, the Roman road, which was this uh, really terrible, terrible way of reading the book of Romans out of context, picking out verses here and there and creating sort of this, here's how you go to heaven sort of thing. Uh, and we actually used to go down to the church basement and we would make these little bracelets with co- different colored beads that would be like black because that's what your sin is, this dark stain on you. And it would be red and it would be the blood of Jesus and blue for baptism and yellow for streets of gold. And we would spend and we would spend hours making these bracelets and we would be unleashed on the local mall and we would go up to complete strangers, try to get them to take our you know, cheap jewelry and then try to lead them down the Roman road. But there is a text that gets added into that whole idea of the Roman road. And it's interesting to me. When we think about sin singular, what is it? What, if sins plural are sort of symptoms of something larger, what is sin singular? And this particular passage, is, I find it really interesting. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Man, I can't tell you the number of times I've used that in sermons back in the day. I can't tell you the number of times I've said it to people, that I've heard it said to people, where we're trying to lead people down this path. But there is something interesting here. I mean, it's hard to argue because we all know ourselves. Whatever sin is, we're pretty much all have participated in it at some point or another. But this text says that we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What is that? What is God's glory? Is God's glory like failing to recognize the importance of God in some way? Like you didn't give God enough credit? Is it offending God's honor? So now that you have offended God's honor, God can't have anything to do with you or stay on the side of you? Is it failing to recognize the significance of God? The word glory in Hebrew is kavod and it means weight. Or is it something else? Because I think a God that needs us to prop up that God's ego needs to go away. Like that's not a God that is worthy of our discussion. So what does it mean to talk about God's glory? And what does it mean to say we've sinned and fallen short of it? There's a second century church father named Irenaeus. And uh, this, is, this quote has shown up in many different forms. This is the one I like the best. And if I were in charge, this is what he would have said. So this, this is attributed to him, but uh, there's different versions out there. But I love this. Here's what Irenaeus says. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Which kind of resonates. At least it does with me when you think about the, the way the Bible in Genesis describes human beings being created in the image of God, somehow to reflect God into the world, that what, what we are essentially as humans is God's glory. Like, like we exist in the world is God's glory. And, you know, I, I think I see some of this just in terms of knowing, watching, watching parents be so completely proud of their kids for like anything, right? Like, anything. I celebrate everything my kids do. Even if they do it, like it doesn't matter. If they bring me a picture and it's all outside the lines, yes, I'm celebrating that, right? There's something about what, what if what it means to God's glory means is it's you and I fully alive. Because the thing we've been taught is that we're all born with original sin and we cannot trust our humanity. That our humanity and everything that comes with it is somehow the problem. And we need to move away from humanity and, and closer to being divinity. When, if anything, the story of Jesus, which is often talked about as the incarnation, right, the infleshing, what the story of Jesus actually is trying to say is that creation is good and God has been present in it from the beginning. That that God's move toward creation is one of yes. And so if you and I are raised our entire lives to mistrust that, 
to mistrust our humanity, to, to think that there's something inherently broken and flawed about us. No wonder we make the choices we do sometimes. And no wonder we carry around such deep pain sometimes. And no wonder we think that there's nothing good in us or that if we have some sort of ability, we should hide it because that's somehow prideful. Like no wonder we're constantly trying to manage what we think are sins. When at the core of the, the deal, the invitation has always been to be exactly who you were made to be, and that is fully human. Perhaps sin isn't murder. Murder is part of the sins category, right? Sin isn't telling a lie. Sin isn't all the... What, what if sin, singular, is failing to live up to our humanity? What if sin, singular, is dehumanizing others? I mean, that's sort of how the Cain story happens, right? Because uh, I think if you get to the point of murder, you've probably dehumanized the person. And you've probably reached the level where you don't see their uh, inherent worth and value, and you don't see the image of God in them. And so now you can do whatever you want with them. And so Cain invites his brother out into the field. What if the great original sin of humanity has nothing to do with all these little things we pick at with each other, and it really is at the core of it failing to live into our true humanness? And of course we have. And of course we still do, right? Religious institutions make a killing on trying to keep us to be telling us we need to be less human and more something else. When in reality, maybe what we're supposed to be, maybe what we're made to be, created to be, what we're here to do is to be as fully human as possible. And if you think about all the things that we would put in the sins category, all those things are ultimately are things that happen when we fail to live up to our humanity. We live beneath it. Anybody ever said uh, you made a mistake and you're just like, I'm only human, right? That's not the truth. You're not only human, you're human. You are this unique creation and gift to the universe. There's nothing wrong with being human. And I think all the pain in the world and all the violence in the world and all the hurt in the world come not from us being human, it comes from the times we choose not to be. And we choose to dehumanize our enemies so we can get rid of them. We choose to gossip about our neighbor because somehow put running them down makes us feel better about ourselves. We, we live in this sort of state where we're, we're trying to move away from the very thing that would be the most healing and joyful thing we could do, and that is live into our humanity. Because when we live into our humanity, what we discover is that we are a mixture of divine breath and soil. That you, you can't actually get to God outside of the human in a way. Like if we became angels, we wouldn't have the same connection. We wouldn't have the same experience, right? What if falling short of God's glory, the thing I've been as a youth, I was terrified of doing, is what happens every time I choose not to love, but instead to hate? What if it's every time I choose not to see the value and worth, even in my worst enemy, and I choose to sort of send them down another category where, I, you know, if something bad happens, it doesn't matter as much because they're, they're not with us. What if falling short of God's glory is the very us-them categories we create? There's something here, I think. And yeah, we, we manage sins, but what if we actually went to the root of the issue? What if we started asking questions about the way we actually live and engage? Um, so here's a couple of things. I think this, this idea of sin singular works on two levels. I think it works on a corporate level, like everything. And then I think it works on a personal level. The ways we sort of societally and as a species engage in it, and then the ways we engage in it 
in our own sort of experiences. And I think you can look throughout world history and you can see all sorts of sins, plural, being carried out um, because of sin singular, this dehumanization of others. Because um, slavery doesn't happen without dehumanizing others. Segregation and Jim Crow laws don't happen without dehumanizing others. Auschwitz doesn't happen without dehumanizing others. Putting the economy above human lives does not happen without dehumanizing others. The great tragedies that we have created in this world have been born out of dehumanization. And I think that all of it, going back to this, in Genesis, this sort of mythical first murder, where one brother kills the other, and sin enters the story in a way uh, that the Bible wants to tell. It's never been about those individual things here and there. It's all been about this thing that's under the surface driving it all. What about personally? I mean, I, I, I have to tell you, um, I spend maybe way too much time deleting Facebook comments that I never hit send on, thankfully. Um, because often when I'm at my most lizard brain moment on the internet, I'm going to say something that is unhelpful. And this is also true in person. I say lots of things sometimes that um, sometimes my brain moves faster than my mouth, or no, my mouth moves faster than my brain. I think my brain sometimes apparently doesn't move at all, but if it were moving, I think sometimes my mouth uh, gets ahead of it. What are the ways we dehumanize others? I mean, because that's what ends up happening, right? When we can dehumanize somebody, then we have license to do whatever we want because they're not human. They're somehow beneath us. What if as a human being, I chose not to run away from my humanity because that's what gets us into trouble. What if I chose to run into a full humanity, a full divine image-bearing humanity, where I looked at the people around me, not as people who could either help me advance or, or help me get where I need to go, or that if I did this to them, I would look better and be more respected. What if I was able to actually become a human being who, who didn't need other people to prop him up? What if I became a human being who could see the divine in every other human being? Then, I don't think we have to spend so much time worried about sins. Right, because we're dealing with the root issue. The root issue is that we dehumanize each other. The root issue is that when I look at other human beings, depending on who they are, depending on where they're from, depending on what their political party is, depending on what their religious, so you, you know how it goes. When I look at another human being and see them as less than human, I am diving into this thing the Bible calls sin singular. And the entire journey of scripture, I think, the arc it's headed on is calling us away from dehumanization and into a full divine image bearing, full of grace and goodness and compassion and love humanity. Sometimes people ask the question like, what do you think about humanism? I think God may be a humanist. Because it seems like that the entire story is about God creating this creation and putting these image bearers in it to enjoy it and celebrate it and share it. And when sin, singular, enters the story, we cease to celebrate, enjoy, and share, and we start fighting over it and demanding our piece of it, and then everything gets all wonky. And that's a very technical theological term. So what does it look like to be a person who takes sin seriously? Like one of the things I'm asking in this series is, uh, do we even need some of these words anymore? Do they still have license? Do they still have value? And I think looking at salvation last week, I think it does, right? Because I think we all need liberation. I think we all have a sense of estrangement at times that we want to come home from. I think we all are on this journey, hopefully, where we're seeking to become as whole and healthy as possible. 
do we still need sin? Look, I, I don't, what I don't think we need is people marching around with signs with sins, plural, that they think are the worst or that they even think are sins, right? Because if, you, if we all sat down and put our list of sins on the table, they're not gonna match. What if we spent our time, though, not talking about sins? What if we spent our energy working on this other thing beneath the surface, this sin singular that is inviting us to fight and dehumanize and hurt and wound all for our own benefit at someone else's expense? What if we started, and what if we started this on a personal level, and what if it bled out to a corporate level? What if we, as a society, what if, what if just Grace Point, we decided, you know, we're going to do everything we can to stop the dehumanization? Because I know we think it isn't, but it is present in the progressive world too. And sometimes I hit send on it on the internet. <laughs> what if we were actually seeking to deal with the thing behind the thing. It's easy to talk about sins, but when we get to sin, singular, it's a whole other discussion. That's where, we, that's where we have to decide who we want to be in the world. What kind of people we wanna be, what kind of community we wanna be, what kind of country we wanna be, what kind of society globally we want to be. Because we've seen what sin does. Dehumanizes, it takes, it kills. And yet we also know what it means to be human. And in those best moments, holding my little boy for the very first time, looking at his face, thinking, oh, this is the greatest gift I've ever been given. Nothing wrong, originally good, originally connected, beautiful human being. We have glimpses of those moments. We're seeing them right now during this pandemic. We're seeing human beings who are stepping up and putting themselves at risk for the well-being of others. Doctors and nurses, we have people who are opening grocery stores and are working in restaurants and still providing food and delivering food. And we have police officers and we have people out doing things that are actually pretty daggone human and pretty beautiful when you see them. We, we know what that's like. What if we chose that? Because God says to Cain, sin is Pounce, ready to pounce. It's by the door and it wants to get you, but you don't have to fall for it. What if sin isn't inevitable? What if it's something we're having to choose? And what if we shut that voice off and we listen to the voice that's calling us toward more love, more connection, more compassion, and more goodness? So I, I look forward to hearing some feedback and discussion. We're going to talk about this on Wednesday night as well. If you're around for Reconstruct at 630, um, is sin a word that we need to keep around? I think that it actually has some legs on it. I think it describes an issue we're dealing with in humanity of dehumanization. And I think it can begin to give us a way to maybe deal with it. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for this community. I'm so grateful for um, the, the folks all around us who are, doing such good work right now in a very difficult time. And may we have the courage to stop focusing on the sins, plural. And may we begin to do an inner inventory on our participation in sin, singular. May we reject a politics and a religion of dehumanization. May we reject simply labeling them as beneath us or unworthy. May we May we refuse to live beneath our good humanity, but may we step into the fullness of that humanity. And as image bearers of the divine, may we partner together to create this world 
in this world, the kind of society, the kind of communities, the kind of relationship that we actually have always wanted. So give us courage, give us wisdom. Let us, let us have the discernment to know when we're participating in sin singular. And may we choose better. We love you and we're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace Point, thank you so much for being with us this week. Um, we'll be here again next week. And uh, I think next week we're talking, it's Palm Sunday, and we'll be talking about atonement. What does atonement mean and do we need it? So hopefully you'll be back with us. Make sure you say hi in the comments and join us this Wednesday night at Reconstruct. Until then, be safe, be well, grace and peace.